So we reading Ephesians two nineteen through three thirteen. Verse nineteen. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the, through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's open our Bibles again uh, to the book of Ephesians. And this morning we'll be looking at starting chapter 3. And yes, I know some of you are doubtful right now. Just call you Thomas, but... um, Doubtful that we would make it through seven verses. That's not usual. So, you know, you're, you're probably wondering, okay, we're we going to be here till two or three o'clock, you know, the way John goes. So, uh, I, I don't think so. I think we can go a little bit uh, quicker through this because it's, it, he's relating, uh, more historically what has happened. There's not as, it's not as, um, not as chock full of theology that we find in some of the other passages that we've just been through. And as we're going to be coming to. So Ephesians 3 verses 1 through 7. The mystery of the church. The mystery of the church. When you learn the glorious truths of scripture. What impact do they have on you? Paul taught in Romans 15 that. The scriptures encourage us, and he called it the encouragement of the scriptures. And that encouragement of the scriptures, he says, there gives us hope. And in that passage in Romans 15, this hope comes as we are encouraged by the scriptures to love one another amidst our differences. And that's the point he's making there. <clears throat> well, we've come to another passage of scripture that is designed to encourage us. And how is this passage, the first, really 13 verses, we're only going to cover about half of that but today, <clears throat> how do they give us hope? How do they encourage us? Well, today's passage calls us to be encouraged by the greatness of God's power. We've seen that before, haven't we? Especially back at the end of, of chapter 1 in his prayer. His first prayer, 
be encouraged by the greatness of God's power, which has revealed to us the mystery that Gentiles are now fellow members of the church. Be encouraged by the greatness of God's power. That power has revealed to us the mystery that Gentiles are now members, fellow members of the church. As I said, he, Paul has already talked about God's power at the end of chapter 1. And when he is talking about it there in his prayer for them, he points out how that power of God manifested itself first by raising Jesus from the dead and then making him to be the head over everything, the absolute sovereign over everything and everyone. Part of that sovereignty of Jesus is that he is head of this new organism we've been talking about here in chapter 2 that he introduces for us right at the very end of chapter 1, that is, the church. Jesus is head of the church, and the church is his body. And so now, in his great power, God has revealed to us that Gentiles are fellow members with all the saints through all history. Not only has his power revealed that to us, but it has actually accomplished it too. The Ephesian church was an early example of that. They could look at how God has actually accomplished this. And now they're getting even more particular information on how God revealed that. And if you're wondering, okay, why why is that so surprising? Because for us, that's not surprising. For us, we look at that and, what, what mystery? That, that's not a mystery. I've known that all my life. And that's because you've been born, you know, you were born 2,000 years after this was really a big issue. Now, it still applies to us because, you know, what church doesn't wrestle with differences among its people? We may not be, you know, we have a few here who are... Jewish by blood, and most are Gentiles, but we don't have any issues by that. You probably don't even know. Most of you don't even know who the Jews are in here. So, And uh, and so, you know, it's not an issue. But there are other issues that we and every other church today wrestles with. Because we're, we're different in a lot of different ways. And we wrestle with loving one another, as going back to Romans 14, amidst our differences. So, thinking on this display of God's power is designed to encourage us. And then that encouragement is designed to give us hope. That's the plan that Paul has here, what he's trying to accomplish in this passage. Why do we need this hope? Why do we need this hope? Well, we are, I want to say, we're quickly getting to uh, chapters 4 through 6, but you, you know me, it, it might be another year, probably not, but <clears throat> we'll go a little quickly this time, and then next week uh, we'll be able to go a little faster just because of the nature of the passage. We'll slow down a little bit for his prayer and praise at the end of chapter 3, but really it won't be that long till we are in the application section of Ephesians. So, chapters 1 through 3, remember, are, are he's laying a, a theological foundation for them, as he often does. And then he builds on that and says, okay, now what do we do with all of that? And so he knows that after teaching them about this is how, what the church is, let's talk about the way it's supposed to operate. 
And he knows that that is a tall order. It actually is too hard for any church to do. And so he he knows that he needs to pray for them. And so after talking about all that glorious truth about this new organism, the church, there in the last half of chapter 2, he says, okay, in his mind, I need to pray for them. And that's what he's going to start out doing here is to pray for them. He knows that when they try to live out this new vision of what the church is to be, the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to oppose them. They're going to oppose us. And I hope you know that. I hope you realize that. That Just as things seem like at times in a person's life or a church's life, they seem to go well, kind of smooth, and you think, I've got my arms around this. We as a church, we've got our arms around this. Well, you you need to remember that there's these three formidable forces out there that are too much for us. Not too much for the Lord, but too much for us. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And, and of course, one of those, the flesh, is inside of us. It makes it even more formidable. And so we need prayer. Those three forces will seek to derail us from our mission. That we, we are... Unfolding here as we go through Ephesians. What is the mission of the church? They will seek to discourage us when we fail so that we don't get up and try again. And you know that, right? You look in your own life when you trip and fall spiritually. There's that temptation most of the time that's just like, why get up? Why try again? This is the seven millionth time that you've tried. And you tripped once again. So why? See, they're there to discourage us. And they will seek to distract us by offering competing missions. The church has, has had to deal with this throughout its history. Um, it probably seems like this in every generation, but in ours it seems like it's, there's this onslaught of, no, the church ought to be doing this, and the church ought to be this, and the church ought to be doing that. And, you know, and the world is giving us all these different ideas, and Christians are buying into it, and they're putting out books, and this is what the church is to be. And so then churches spring up, or they decide, okay, we're going to reinvent ourselves, and we're going to do this, and try this plan, and... You know, and then that fizzles and they try something else and that fizzles and they try something else and they're just constantly trying something new. Well, they're being distracted from the mission that Jesus gave us. So we need encouragement and we need hope. And that's what Paul gives us here in Ephesians 3. He gives us great hope. Now let's take a minute to talk about where we're at. We entered a new section, so let's go to the outline. And... Again, just for review first, we're in that first section, chapters 1 through 3, the first half where it's a theological foundation, where we are, he's, we're seeking to discover the vastness of God's love in calling you. And you remember some of those themes from those words from chapter 1, especially we've already looked at. Discover the vastness of God's love in calling you. And then breaking that down, we looked briefly at the greetings and then how Paul praised God for the riches of His glory. He thanked God and prayed for them to know the value of their blessings. Paul reflected next on the hope of God's calling 
And now we enter this new section. Paul encouraged them with the greatness of God's power. And and I've brought out in the outline, because even though these are really interwoven throughout the first three chapters, those three things that he prayed for them at the end of chapter 1 really provides, in my mind, a, a a way to help us outline these first three chapters. And so you might see under letter B, the riches of his glory. You remember him praying for that, that we would know that? And then letter D, the hope. Did I, put, I didn't give you letters on there. It's on my notes, so sorry. So the, well, you can see it up there. I meant to underline them, but you know, I'm getting old, so I forget. And, you know, Terry thinks he's got a corner on being old. No, it's like... Okay, so the riches of his glory there in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, the hope of God's calling, where it talked about us and our salvation, but also our calling as the saints. And then now we're looking at the greatness of God's power. And I said those, as I said, they're all overlapping, and you can they're woven all through that. But that's kind of particular. And you'll see today at the end of verse 7, he talks about this God's power once again. And then as we look at, this new section for of chapter 3, 1 through 7, the first part of that, including Gentiles into the church, has previously been a, mis- a mystery. Including Gentiles into the church had previously been a mystery. And that's what we're going to end up talking about most of today, okay? This mystery. Now, backing up a little bit, though, remember I said that Paul is getting ready to pray, okay? And that's what he's going to do here. So having walked the Ephesian saints through the truth that Jews and Gentiles have been formed into this one new man, this new organism, Paul is moved to pray because he wants them to be able to fully grasp the depth of Christ's love. That's where he's headed with this in his prayer. He wants to pray that they would know the depth of God's love. And if you're familiar with Ephesians 3, you know where that comes from, right? Toward the end. Okay, but we're going to see that he's, he's going to do a little time out here in just a second. But let's start with this. And this is in the outline um, as, that we'll see here in just a minute. This is not really a, a part of this sermon's outline, if you will. This is kind of preliminary if you will. So this is a freebie, okay? And so first, prayer interrupted. So Paul bursts into prayer at this point. And that's something that I've tried to bring out when we've gone through Ephesians, that he goes through chapter 1 with all of those rich spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. And he can't help but just burst into prayer. And and so that's how he finishes off chapter 1. Now, chapter 2, he's talked about the greatness of our salvation. He's talked about how there's this change not only in their individual status, but there's a change in their, their corporate status, that Jews and Gentiles had been separated. Now they're brought together in the church. And so with that, he just bursts into prayer and praise. Okay? Okay, so let's start with that. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this reason, that in other words, all that I just told you in chapter 2. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Oh, wait a minute. Okay, so we're going to stop there. Okay, before we get into his, oh, wait a minute, we're going to, that's what that long dash that some of you have in your translations, that's what that means. Oh, wait a minute. Okay. So, let's talk about why he first burst into prayer. 
and prayer and praise. Well, how should we respond to rich theology? Yeah, I I know we sometimes do this, but hopefully, whenever we are reading scripture or reading a good Christian book, we come across something that's telling us this is the truth of God's word. That you know we're not. Oh. Now maybe you're really tired and you're you're yawning, and that's okay. And you may still be absorbed in it, and that's fine. But you know what I mean by that is you're just kind of like, okay, I'm looking forward to the end of this book. I'm looking forward to the end of this book in the Bible. I just want to get through it so I can say I made it through. That's what I'm talking about. No, we, we ought to respond the way He does. Whenever we come across truth in Scripture, which, you know, that's what it's full of, right? We should say, Lord... I want to praise you for that. And I want to pray. Pray for yourself. Lord, help me to live accordingly. Help me to remember this promise. Help me to do something with this. Help me to change. And then, you know, if you're wrestling with, okay, what should I be praying about? You know, what well, you've got 100, 200 people that you can pray for. Pray that same thing for them. That's what we should do. So what you prayed for them, prayed for yourself, pray for them. Prayer and praise, that's how we should respond. So Christ has formed this new organism bringing Jews and Gentiles together. And he says, for this reason, I need to pray for you. Because I know what I'm getting ready to tell you, you have to do. Chapters 4 through 6. And I know how hard that's going to be. Yeah, glorious truth, but we've got some tough application coming, okay? <clears throat> Applying this rich theology won't be easy, but it is certainly a reason to praise God. It's certainly a reason to pray. Now, Paul seems to introduce himself again. I mean, here he is almost in the middle of the letter, and I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, like, you already introduced yourself at the beginning. Why are you doing it now here? Well, he's not really introducing himself. What he's doing is he's giving them, telling them the reason why he's suffering imprisonment. Let me tell you, remind you, don't forget, guys, why I'm in prison. It's because he faithfully preached the gospel message to the Gentiles. Okay? That's why he is in prison. And so he calls himself Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, or who belongs to Christ Jesus. Yes, the Jewish leaders and the Romans have caused him to suffer in prison, but he recognized that he belonged to Christ, and only Christ had ultimate authority over him. Only Christ has ultimate authority over his experiences. You see, so he doesn't look... Hat and, and allow himself to get, you know, f- fixated on the people that are, that are the direct cause of his suffering. He looks to the ultimate cause. He looks to Christ. I'm a prisoner that belongs to Christ. I'm in prison because Christ ordained me to be there. Paul was able to view his circumstances as part of God's sovereign plan. Yes, he was a prisoner of Rome. But that was not the most significant fact for him to dwell on. 
He was in prison by God's design. He knew the real reason he was in prison because, was because Christ had ordained for him to be there and Christ had glorious plans for him in prison. That enabled him to interpret his experience this way. Look again at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, and then here, he interprets it. For the sake of you Gentiles. You see, we all interpret everything that uh, everything that passes through your brain. You're interpreting it. You're interpreting right now me. You're like, I hope you didn't go too long on this, or you know, I, I don't, I don't agree with anymore. Okay, this is good stuff, or you know, that's what all of you're thinking, right? Okay, <clears throat> I'm gonna think the best. And, uh, we all interpret everything. And Paul is teaching us here, by example, how to interpret rightly. You see, yes, it's true that the Jews are the ones that stirred up trouble and got him arrested. And true, the Romans are the ones who physically put him in prison and are keeping, keeping him there. But as I said, those are not the most significant facts in this story. If we think back to how he got into prison here, uh, we, we're not going to go there. You can read it later. But Acts 21 and 22 talk about this. When he was seized, uh, well, the Jews stirred up people against Paul when he was in Jerusalem. The Romans step in to try to calm things down. They seize Paul. But he asked to talk to the crowd. And so he's speaking to them in uh, their dialect. And so they're like, oh, hey, okay, this guy... That was our language, and so they listened to him for a while. And what he did is he tells them his, his gives them his testimony. This is how I was saved. And this is the ministry that I've had. But then when he got to the part where Jesus said to him, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, the Jews lost it at that point. And they're like, this guy needs to die. That's enough. We've heard enough. Blasphemy. He needs to die. Why? Because in their mind, and this is the way it was under the law, if a Gentile said, I, I want to follow Yahweh, I want to be one of Yahweh's worshipers, he had to become a Jew. So uh, no Gentile ever came into the court of the women or the court of men in the temple. No Jew was ever considered among God's people, or part of God's people, a member of God's people, unless they became a Jew first. Well, Paul is going out there preaching to the Gentiles that you get to come into the kingdom of God and into this new church without becoming a Jew first. And to them, that was blasphemy. They lost it. They wanted him to die. And so then he finds himself in Rome. Well, this is why I wanted to take a few minutes on this. Will you and I learn from Paul's perspective on what happens to us? Will we choose to interpret our circumstances, especially the hard circumstances, from God's perspective? Will we train ourselves to say, I am here by God's design? 
Will we train ourselves to say, God has me here for His good and wise purposes? Will we train ourselves to, to ask or to say, God put me here to serve Him? Will we do that? Because that's what we must do. That's what Paul did. Just in that little phrase. Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus. That is what he's saying. There's something more significant than the facts that we, we often focus on. What is God's place in this? God's plan for me? So interpret your experiences from God's perspective. Okay. So. Paul, is, he started out praying. I need to pray for you guys because I know I'm getting ready to give you some pretty tall orders. So he starts praying. I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus. And he's getting ready to say what he's going to say in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my needs before the Father. But he doesn't. He said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Hang on a second. We need more theology. After Ephesians 1 and 2, we need more theology? Yeah, you need a little bit more. Because Paul just realized that I sprung this whole idea of this mystery on them in chapter 2. And they're probably scratching their heads. You see, as I was kind of saying already, if you were a Jew in the early days of the church, you would have been surprised that God was adding Gentiles into the church without them becoming a Jew first. Remember the whole episode, Peter and Cornelius, you know, the animals coming down on the sheet and all that whole thing? Peter was wrestling with that. And remember, he had some problems with it. Go back and read Galatians. Paul had to rebuke him over it. This was hard for them to accept because it had been this way for thousands of years. Now, all of a sudden, it's changed? They knew God never said anything about this in the Old Testament. Yes, he said he would save Gentiles. He said that in a lot of places. But he never said that Gentiles as Gentiles will be a part of the people of God. He never said that. And so they were faced with accepting a mystery. Now we get into the mystery. Number one. As an apostle, Paul was an, was an administrator of truth. Verse 2. He was an administrator of truth. So here, now, he, 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 he hits the pause button on his prayer. He says, I, I need to tell you about this mystery first. So he says in verse 2, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you... And so this tells us a little bit about that apostolic ministry, the nature of it. The apostles were, on the one hand, administrators of truth. So there was truth that was New Testament truth that hadn't been given in the Old Testament yet. And, and they were, the apostles were the administrators of it. They were the ones that received it directly from God. And then they were the ones who disseminated it to the truth. They wrote it into the scriptures or disseminated it to the church and, and they wrote it into the scriptures. They were stewards, administrators of it. And he said that he was given special grace for preaching this ministry to the Gentiles. Number two. As an apostle, 
Paul received revelation about this mystery, verses 3 through 5. As an apostle, Paul received revelation about this this mystery, verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. So how was this revealed to them? They didn't come up with this on their own. I know a lot of a lot of people who want to undermine the scriptures. They try to say, "Oh, you know, you know, these guys made up stuff." And no, they didn't. They received this from God. It was revealed to them directly from God to them. Okay. Paul makes a big deal of that in in Galatians, where he says, "I didn't receive this gospel from anybody. I got it directly from Christ," and that's what made him an apostle, capital A. They didn't come up with it on their own. God made it known to them. He revealed it. And revealing is unveiling something that had been hidden. So you kind of have it behind the curtains, you know. And, and, and so the curtains are opened up and now you can see it. And that's what he's talking about. Verse 4. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So, how are they going to be able to understand this mystery? Because when you hear the term mystery, I don't know about you, but you, the first time you read it in Scripture, you may be thinking, like, you know, those mystery religions, and for them, mystery is something that only the, the super spiritual few can understand. And, and a lot of religions would do that, and cults will do that, it's like... Only the inner circle actually gets to have this, you know, the knowledge of this mystery. And they're not allowed to, to say it to anybody else, okay, and share it. That's not at all the New Testament use of the word mystery. What Paul says is that you will be able to understand it when you finally get to this place in your spiritual life where you're holy enough and you're set apart enough and... No. Did you see what he read, what he said? When this letter is read to you, you'll understand it. That's kind of simple. And that's the point. Biblical truth, typically, is not hard to understand. Now, there are some passages that stretch us. I know that. But biblical truth, none of it is, well, well you know, only, you know, theologians, you, know, you had to go to seminary to understand that. that. That's not why we go to, go to seminary. All of us can understand all of the Scriptures. They're clear. Now, we need teachers sometimes to help us see how it all unfolds and everything, but that doesn't mean that we have any kind of secret knowledge or anything. None of us do. We just read it, and we will understand. Paul, his insight, so he understood it when God gave it to him, and he says, when you read what I've written, you'll understand it. So what is a biblical mystery? The way, how is the word mystery used in the New Testament? Well, it's a mystery because God had not re- revealed this from His mind, His secret counsel, before the New Testament times. That's all it means. Is that God already knew what He was going to do. From eternity past, He's always known what He's going to do. <clears throat> and it's not like he's like, well, you know, I think I might try this this time. And no, he already knows everything he's going to do, the, the secret counsel of God. And the way, the way he, re- he reveals himself bit by bit throughout time, through the scriptures. So we know a whole lot more than Abraham knew or than, you know, Noah and those guys. We know more about God than they did. They knew enough. 
for what God required. But he's revealed more and more, and that's what's happened here. There were some things he hadn't talked about yet by his own plan in the Old Testament. So a mystery, <clears throat> real simple, kind of rhymey, so you'll be able to remember this. A mystery is truth previously concealed, now revealed. Okay, real simple. Previously concealed, now revealed. <clears throat> there, okay, so I heard someone teach that when you come across the word mystery in the New Testament, just think church, because it, it typically means the church. Okay, well, that's not true. Um, the word mystery is used 27 times in the New Testament. And as I went through those, <clears throat> you know, because I could already think of, well, it means this in this other passage, and this in this passage. There's probably 17 different things that the use of that word refers to. And only five of them are about the church. And so you can look those up, and I might go through them next time. I did all that study on it, and I don't know if I'll give it to you next time or not. But <clears throat> we don't necessarily need it, but <clears throat> there are at least 17 different things that at one point were a mystery, and now they've been revealed, okay? <clears throat> like the gospel and some other things like that, right? <clears throat> and First uh, Corinthians 4, 1 actually uses the plural. The, the apostles are administrators of these mysteries. So there's more than one. Okay, and it doesn't refer to just that one thing. Okay. Now, and, and where those show up as the church are four times, four of the five uses in uh, Ephesians. So, <clears throat> but it doesn't always mean that in Ephesians. So how did this mystery first come to be known? Verse 5. He says, that, talking about this mystery, which in other generations, in other words, the Old Testament times, was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. <clears throat> so, before New Testament times, before Jesus and the apostles, this mystery was not made known. But God did reveal it to those apostles and prophets. Remember, we talked about them. Those or the guys that finish out the foundation. You had Christ as the cornerstone. The rest of the foundation is made up of New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. Okay, And he, he picks up those same guys here again, because he's still really talking about the same theme. And he says that they were holy. They're holy. Why? They're set apart to be administrators of this. They're set apart for this particular function. They're not like, you know, the super spiritual guys, you know. Not at all. <clears throat> Like I said, you know, um, Paul had to rebuke Peter, you know. They weren't perfect. They were sinners just like us. They were holy because God set them apart for this job. And they did this by means of the Spirit. Um, they revealed this by means of the Spirit. Think here, Second Peter one twenty one, uh, one of the, the key passages about the inspiration of Scripture. How men <clears throat> uh, moved along by the Holy Spirit, as Peter says. They were moved along as they were writing so that they wrote what he wanted them to write. Okay, That's the idea that Paul's thinking of here. Number three. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow members of Christ's body. So here he's actually giving them the content. This is what this mystery is. 
that I'm talking about right here. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow members of Christ's body. Verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what he does here is he uses three different terms. And these are three Greek words. One of them, the second one, he coined it himself. He, he made that word up, if you will. And what he did is he, he used words that started with a particular preposition. And the Greek word, for those of you who know a little bit about Greek, soon, which means with or together with. Well, our English translation is a good way to handle that is just use the word fellow in front of each of these so to draw it out. So you have fellow heirs, uh, fellow members, and fellow partakers, right? So first, fellow heirs... And this is what he said, I want to tell you, this is what the mystery is. That we are these three things. We're fellow heirs first. Those are people who will receive an inheritance together. Gentiles are joint heirs of every spiritual blessing. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 3. So you think about, you know, when, when the parents pass away, or maybe it's a rich uncle or somebody. And, well, there, there's sometimes, sometimes there's just one person, but sometimes there's several. There's a group of people who will be inheriting, and so they are joint heirs. And that's what he's saying, is that that Gentiles are now joint heirs with not only Jews, but even the people that were before the Jews. So you think, you know, Noah and Abel and, you know, godly people from way back then. Second, Gentiles are fellow members of the body of Christ. You know, and that's kind of the, the heart of all this. We're fellow members. We all go together. We don't... I know sometimes we still do this. We shouldn't. You know, there's sometimes a, a you know church for Jews, Christian Jews, and there's a church for you know Christian Gentiles. And it shouldn't be that way. We need to all be in the same church and, and join together because that's the plan of Christ. Third, <clears throat> Gentiles are fellow partakers of the promise. Now, what promise is that? Well, we saw that term back in chapter 2, verse 12. Remember, the covenants of the promise is how it should read, how it is in Greek. The covenants of the promise, it's that same promise he's talking about. What is that? It's the promise of the new covenant. Okay, which, remember, when we do the Lord's table, we often have, this is my blood of the new covenant, right? It's the promise that goes with that. Okay, the promise of the new covenant. They share in that. And I know there's some people um, in recent decades that have said that there there's a new covenant for the Jews and there's a new covenant for the Gentiles. And you don't find that in Scripture. Okay? There's one new covenant. And he, he draws that out here. We are fellow partakers, sharers, in that one new covenant and the promise of that new covenant. And he said this all happened by means of the gospel. And through the gospel, Gentiles become fellow sharers with with. And that happens in the sphere of Christ. And so so what happens here in the slide illustration is that you've got... Well, I didn't... I don't think I drew it out there. I drew it on my paper, but in my office. So um, what happens is that you have the sphere of Christ... Remember in Christ? Remember that whole theme? We've been working our way through Ephesians. Paul loves... That's his favorite. In Christ, in Him, in whom. Okay. And He's doing that again here. 
It's in Christ Jesus. And so Christ, picture Christ as this, this sphere. <clears throat> and so through the gospel, a Jew becomes saved and they are made part of Christ. They're joined in, they're in Christ now. And then same way, Gentiles, they get saved in Christ. Well, what it's happening here, he's saying, is that you've got both of these groups coming in the same way, into the same Christ, and they're becoming a part of the same church because they're all in Christ. And you, and you can see where he's going with this whole idea of unity, right? We're going to get into in chapter 4, right? And you can, now you know why it's so hard, okay? <clears throat> and why he needed to pray. This happens in, in Christ, in Christ Jesus. Now, number four. God's grace was the power behind Paul's ministry. Verse 7. God's grace was the power behind Paul's ministry. He says here in verse 7, "...of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power." Now, he uses, we have, my translation has, uh, he was made a minister. That's the Greek word diakonos. We get deacon from that. And that's one of the ways it's used in the New Testament. It's also used uh, commonly just in everyday life of a waiter. Okay. <clears throat> so now when we have our next fellowship meal, we get the deacons to wait on us. We can just go sit at the table and, yeah, I don't want to do that. And I, and Jared will probably be the one to bring mine. So, <clears throat> So, it was used of waiter, it was used of somebody who served a king, and it was used of a deacon. Okay, there's just different ways that this term is used. Paul's, he's not saying minister in the sense of like, I'm above everybody. Not that. He's a servant. And God's grace is what empowered him. It empowered this gift. You see, and, and this is, okay, so Paul says, God gave me this gift of preaching to the Gentiles this mystery, this gospel. And that gift got me thrown into prison. And Paul would look at that as, that's just part of the gift. You see? Because he saw that God was using even his imprisonment. Think back to Philippians 1. We went through that a few years ago, right? Now, Paul's in prison, what's he doing? Praising God. Why? Because they think they can, you know, put chains on me and chain up the gospel? Ha ha. The gospel's going now even faster now. You see? So he sees that as part of the gift. Because God's power is behind it. We've seen the two words that are used here for power, the word working and the word power. Um, we saw them back, as I mentioned earlier, in chapter 1 in his prayer. He had several terms there, four, I believe, um, but he only picked up two here. This first word, the working of his power, the word working is the Greek word energeia. We get energy, energetic, things like those terms from that. And we said that that is power in operation. It's power that's being exercised. Paul saw God's power at work, and that's what he's talking about here. I, I've seen God's power at work in my ministry. And you think again, okay, so I'm chained up, you know, I've got a guard on each side of me in prison here in Rome, and power is just emanating in the gospel. Because, you know, so I'm chained up to these guys, and I'm like, ha-ha, you know, you get to listen to the gospel all day. 
And so he preaches the gospel to this guy and this guy, and now changing of the guard. Okay, two more, you know, guys to talk to and gospel, you know, share the gospel with. And the power of God is going out throughout that whole praetorian guard. That's what he's, he's saying here. I'm seeing it. I'm witnessing God's power. You know, I know how you and I would look at it. We would we'd be chained up and we'd just sit there and mope all day, right? Why me? Poor, pitiful me. You know, you know, maybe Paul did that a little bit at first. I doubt it, but maybe. You know, he's, he's a sinner like us. But hopefully at some point, while you're moping, in whatever, you know, thing that you're going through, gone through, there's a part of you that just kind of remembers, like, you know, I forgot. I'm here by God's design. He put me here. Okay, well, what can I do to serve Him here, wherever I'm at, whatever this problem I'm under? The second word, power, uh, is the Greek word dunamis. We get dynamite from that. Uh, it's potential power. So a stick of dynamite, and this doesn't mean dynamite, but it's a good example, good picture. A stick of dynamite, you know, you keep it safely in, in its container, and it's fine. It is nothing, you know, it's not active power. It's like, you know, the electricity running through. This is this is power going on. I mean, it's doing stuff. It's lighting up things. It's playing the mic and all that, okay? The sound and... Dunamis is potential power. What he's saying here is that God has the power to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish. He does what he wants to do. And he has the power. Nobody can stop him. Okay, so there's that potential power to accomplish everything he wants to do. And then when he says, OK, now it's time to act in this certain thing, it's it becomes from dunamis to energia. It goes, it's the working of that power. OK, it's the energy. It's like you turn the light switch on. So, you know, the power plant has all this power and you flip the switch and all of a sudden that power is now flowing, you know, to your lights or refrigerator or whatever. God's grace has the power to accomplish both the revelation of God's plan to make this known to us, make it understandable, but also to accomplish it, to bring Jews and Gentiles together into the body. Well, as we said, believers should be encouraged by how God's power has made known to us this very key part of God's plan, this church, this new thing where Jew and Gentile are both a part of that. God did not reserve His plans for a super-spiritual few. In power, He made this known to any believer. So even you young people, as you come to know Christ, you can understand this. You don't have to wait till you're 30 or anything. All believers are full and equal participants in the church. We may have different roles, but we're full and equal participants. We're fully able to understand. We're all part of this. We don't have a, like in their day, they, they weren't, it wasn't okay to have, you know, the Jews in the main part and, and, and the Gentiles will we'll seat them out in the hall. You know, Jews were tempted to think that way. It's not that. We're all together as fellow members of the body. Well, as we come to the Lord's table, 
This is all built on the work of Christ. The work of Christ on the cross. This is all built on the fact that He died to pay for our sins. And He secured all the provisions we need for this church. And then He rose again to make it all happen. That resurrection power now works in His church. The work of Christ is the foundation for all of this. And so, Jews and Gentiles, through the gospel, which is the truth about that work of Jesus, Jews and Gentiles both come into this sphere, this one organism that is in Christ. And because of that, because of this gospel, which is another one of the things that the, that the word mystery is used to refer to in a couple places. Because it had these elements in it. Things God hadn't shared yet. But now He has. 